Welcome to the Abundant Leaders Podcast. I'm Tenji, your host, a certified executive coach and leadership developer with more than a decade of experience advising executives, managers, and companies on how to perform at their peak and find deeper alignment and fulfillment. My dream is for all of us to live in the truth and fullness of who we are so that we can have the biggest lives and most fulfilling careers that are possible for us. It is all possible for us. Together, let us lead ourselves, our people, and our organizations with confidence, courage, and wisdom. This is our time to heal and expand, to thrive, and to lead abundantly. Before we begin this episode, I'm excited to share the launch of Discover What Gives You Meaning, a 90-minute workshop that will help you to get to the heart of who you uniquely are and what matters most to you and what enables you to thrive so that you can use this information to create a career that's more fulfilling in purpose and sustainable for you. Being your powerful, authentic, confident self is the key to attracting aligned career opportunities, building trust-based relationships and support networks, and achieving high performance and lasting leadership impact. Many of us spend our early careers building skills, solving for financial security, working hard to fit into corporate culture, and sacrificing a lot to achieve our aspirations. But when we've achieved all of that, we find that something is missing, and we're not quite as fulfilled as we thought we'd be, or we're deeply burnt out. Discover What Gives You Meaning helps you to return to the heart of who you are and translate this information into what it means for the type of career, company, role, and way of working that is a good fit for who you are and the life you want to create for yourself. Then it gives you practical, immediate steps to bring yourself into more alignment with your truth. This is the path to abundance. If this is what you're looking for, Visit tenjimoyana.com forward slash discover what gives you meaning or click the link in the show notes. Hey guys, welcome to another founder slash CEO wisdom podcast. Today with us is Tenji Moyana. She is an executive coach, a founder, a CEO. Uh, she has an interesting background, started pretty early uh, in her life. She got accepted at Harvard, which is pretty exceptional. Uh, she's currently based in South Africa. That's where she's from. She has a real interesting background. She caught my attention almost immediately. That's why I have her on the pod. So we're going to talk about coaching SEALs. We're going to talk about consulting because she has a background at McKinsey as well, which is one of my favorite company and everything in between. So can uh, Tenji, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about yourself and your company? Absolutely. So I am an executive coach and leadership developer and Cobalt Performance is the company that I founded about two and a half years ago to help rising managers, leaders, and executives to step change their performance at work. It's all about how do you have more impact, advance faster to more senior roles so that you can exert more influence and really shape the direction the company you're working for is going in and find deeper fulfillment in your career, all really in a sustainable way. It's all about avoiding burnout. It's all about really doing this in a way that's authentic to you. And that represents who you are. Um, and the reason that I started this company is because 
in my career, I had done everything from investment banking to management consulting. I was an entrepreneur. I ran an interior design company. And in all of those companies, I really loved the work of analyzing challenges. Clients would come to us, I want to raise capital. I'm trying to increase my operating effectiveness in this particular geography or in this particular mine. How do I do that? And we'd come up with strategic plans that would help them to either raise the capsule they need or to step change their performance. But always once we got the, where the rubber really hit the road was executives would feel a little, little bit insecure, a little bit uncertain about how do I actually implement the strategy that McKinsey or JP Morgan has put in front of me, right? How do I actually operationalize the capital? Do I have the right people in place? Do I have the right enablers in place in my organization? And they needed a level of counsel that we weren't really offering them at McKinsey. We were giving them strategies, helping them to think and really deal with the content of strategy, right? And value creation, but not how do you as a leader create that value? What role do you play? How do you manage yourself? How do you manage your team? How do you put all the pieces in place that you need so that you can succeed? And I became more and more drawn to that work. And that's why I started the business. So let's start with the interior design company. What led you to start that? And what lessons did you learn from that one? Yeah, I started the business because I'd always been creative and never had an opportunity to explore it. I grew up in Zimbabwe where we you know had just achieved independence just around the time that I was getting that I was born and my parents really wanted us to be successful so I focused always on sciences math all those types of subjects that would lead you into a more safe professional career because we were really trying to ensure that this next generation of free black people could have successful livelihoods because we had never had the opportunity for that before as black people so I went and I did my duty. I did really well, studied at Harvard, applied my mind, and was also quite gifted creatively in the arts and languages and social sciences, but I never really got to explore that. And so once I had worked for a few years and felt a little bit dissatisfied in my career as an investment banker, I just felt like I had enough of a backup plan in place that I could go and explore and take risks. And that's why I started the interior design company. I'd always been artistic. I really loved it. I wanted a bit of freedom, autonomy, and I wanted to be much closer to the client. And investment banking at that point, I was still an analyst. And you're just in front of your desk, right? Analyzing, crunching numbers, developing models, putting together info memos, presentations, and you're not talking to people, the people you're helping, the people who are gonna be most impacted by your work. And so interior design brought me like face to face with the client in a very senior capacity, right? Because I'm the one advising the homeowner or the business owner. And it just lit me up. So I absolutely loved it. And I learned that when you are in flow, so being in flow is really not just about doing work that's interesting and exciting for you, but it's also about being in a space that leverages your most important skills, not just the skills that are most evident, right? And that are the most kind of um, technical, but the skills that are beneath the layer that actually bring out your best value to the table and your unique gifting. And for me, interior design really showed me that I have this gift of senior client counsel uh, that I hadn't really seen that I was, able, that I was operating in when I was at, at JP Morgan. And I also am a really skilled problem solver, like super visionary, right? Understand where you're trying to go and then can look and say, well, what is blocking you from getting there, right? And how do we design something that will help you 
to have the reality that you're envisaging in your mind. I'm really good at doing that. And so my career since then has all been about putting myself in roles, situations, companies, um, where I get to really shine in this way. Right. So were you a one-man army in that business or did you have employees? I was I was a solo entrepreneur, but how I how I did it was I was very leveraged. I had a team of subcontractors that I developed really strong relationships with that I would then pull in to execute any of the work that I was doing because I wanted to keep my cost base low. And I, as much as I was taking on some risk for vouching for these people, right, I wanted to be able to leverage the expertise of people who are in the market, not just working on my client projects, but on many other projects in the market and really increasing, you know, their experience, their exposure, had their own names and their own brand backing that I could then bring to my clients to like strengthen my own um, fledging brand because my brand was still so young, right? No one knows who Zuva Interiors is, but they they know who this contractor is. They see his work and they know his work is excellent. And they're like, yes, if she can bring someone who can do work like that, then I trust her. And so it was amazing for me to build my business in that way. And how was sales? Because I look at your background, it's like analysts, you know, you guys most of the time sit behind a screen and analyze yeah. stuff. You're, you're not you're not getting to sell stuff. So was that uncomfortable? Can you tell us about the sales experience there? I can tell you for free. I absolutely hated sales. Like in that at that stage of my career, I felt so exposed. I felt uncomfortable about like asking people for money. I I felt insecure about feeling like I'm bothering someone, right? They haven't reached out to me asking for my services. I'm going to them, cold calling them saying, hi, you may need, <laughs> if you do, I could support you. And that was very, very uncomfortable for me. To be quite honest, it did limit my growth because I would find myself hesitating to reach out to exactly the types of people who could benefit from me. I think because I felt very uncomfortable speaking on their behalf to say, hi, you need me. I don't know if you need me. I don't know if you even want an interior designer right now. I don't know if you can afford me, right? So I need to come and like make you engage with something that maybe you haven't been thinking about. And to be quite honest, I wasn't as comfortable with rejection then as I am now. Then it was very personal. It felt like they were, if someone said no, they were saying no to Tenju Moyana, who she is as a heart, soul, and mind, instead of, no, not right now. No, you're too expensive for me. Or no, um, I actually don't need interior design services. Or no, I want to do it myself. There's so many reasons, but I personalized it. I've really grown a lot and taken a lot of that out of, out of that experience for me. And number two, I've changed my sales process, which really works with the way that I like to communicate with people and not feel like I'm jumping into your space, forcing you to engage with me. So that's, that's been a big shift. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, with your background, like uh, Harvard, uh, JP Morgan, cold calling folks that were probably being rude to you, that must've been somewhat tough for the ego, but even back in these days, uh, what I would do, I would have leveraged that background and outreach to like folks in Stellenbach or whatever that place is called, uh, you know, the rich real estate in uh, 
places in South yeah. Africa, I do think that these folks would have been like, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to work with Denji. She's like a, a top, top. Um, did did you make it out well financially no in, in that period of your life? Or like, did you were you thinking like, oh, I need to go back to like a top corporate job to be paid the big salary? Or what, why did you like not give up, but why did you quit the, the founder game uh, in 2015? Yeah. So, you know, just on what you were saying about just quickly on the Harvard thing and, and my big name brands, brands only matter when they're in context. Like it's, it's in context in the career I'm in right now because I'm an executive coach working with high performers and fast paced high performance companies. So absolutely saying Harvard, McKinsey, et cetera, really closes the cell. But when I'm an interior designer, which is all about creativity and thought and process, McKinsey's not known for that, right? We're not those lateral thinkers. We're structured analysts, right? And so then, honestly, it didn't help me so much. What helped me were different things. So I just wanted to make that point in case anyone's grappling with how do I sell myself. Um, why I decided to then ultimately close the business was because I was honestly grappling with my operating model and... I, I, my revenue model, right? Because your revenue model creates your operating model or your operating model will limit your revenue model. And so I was, as a sole entrepreneur, relying on myself to go and, you know, serve every client one-on-one. -on -one. I had this really great network of contractors that I was building trust with that were doing really great work, but I needed more leverage. And it was hard for me as a foreigner in South Africa to raise capital. So I was trying to think of creative ways to actually raise the working capital I needed to get more. And then this freelance market wasn't as robust as it is now. And so I, I, I faced this chicken and egg situation where like, I need to get more hands on deck who can do the low value tasks so that I can do the high value tasks, which is getting great clients, presenting design concepts, creating them, closing them, finding the furniture. And someone else who goes and measures, <laughs> measures the space, goes and like, you know, gives access to the contractor, makes sure that the, you know, tiling is done, you know, correctly and picks up snags before I come and supervise. And so I didn't so much know how to do that. So I felt a bit of a chicken and an egg situation. And I also struggled with relinquishing control. So I ultimately then decided to go to McKinsey because I wanted to learn a little bit more about how companies actually drive value and how they make decisions when they're facing complex drivers the way that I was. Obviously, McKinsey does it at scale, right? But it's still the same principles that apply to you when you're an entrepreneur. Right. You talk often about burnout. Um, to me, I'm going to take a wild guess here, but just having all these expectations on you, maybe that was the case in, in your case, maybe it wasn't, but, you know, going to Harvard, for example, which is like a once in a lifetime accomplishment, uh, then JP Morgan, you know, did you always feel that pressure on you and did you ever experience burnout yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, I burnt out a few times in my career. And it was for lots of different reasons because burnout is a layered experience. Um, part of it was I'm not really physiologically and energetically designed to be always on. But I think culture and society, um, high performance culture, I think capitalism, right, which really values like the input is hours worked and the output is money. 
the more hours you put in, the more money you'll make, right? Um, and so there's also the celebration of hustle culture because we believe that if we're actually bringing this intensity to our work, we'll make the money that we want to. However, I discovered that, A, that's not necessarily true. Um, as an entrepreneur this time around, because I never thought I'd come back to entrepreneurship, yet here I am. What I'm learning is that it's about value. You get paid for the value you create for people and not for the hours of work you put in. And so when you correctly scope something, really, really understand, well, what does the client really need in order to, you know, get what they need out of it? Not what I want, not my sexy product suite that makes me feel intellectually stimulated and valuable because I've brought the sexy thing to the table, but what they need in order to achieve their goal. And only delivering that, right? That's one thing, being very sharp on the ask. And I always worked in organizations previously that weren't always sharp on the ask, just wanted to do the Rolls Royce partly to, you know, because it's the way we work, we want to be robust. We, we want them to have every option available. They want to know that this is the right answer because we did, ran all the analysis, right? So that's one piece. Um, now, when I do that, it means that um, it's taken out like, 30, 40% of waste work, right? Because that wasn't driving value. The second thing that I've learned is leverage, right? I, When you are able to put in one unit hour of input and get $100 of output back to you, right? Then that is more valuable to you than putting a dollar and getting 50 bucks back, right? So what I've done is design my business model now around higher value clients, right? Streamlined services, really not over-engineering the um, diagnostic approach, et cetera, that I do. And actually saying, I'm going to speak to the top people about the top problems that they're facing in a really clean and streamlined way, and they will get the value. And that's really shifted my revenue model so that I don't have to put in as much time. That's how I've protected myself from burnout. But what I had to do embedded in this answer I've given you, Charles, is the piece you talked about with high performance and a lot of expectations being placed on you. I have to say that when I was younger in my career, because I showed great potential and anyone who's listening to this podcast, because it, it really does look like you are pushing at like high performance CEOs, right? For you to be in this kind of space, you probably were a high achiever when you were young, really gifted, or you worked very hard, you, you were outstanding in some way, or you wanted to create something different that other people weren't. And, and there was maybe this um, awareness of your talent. And then there became an expectation around what your talent would achieve for you, for the family, for the demographic you represent. For me, I'm Black, you might be from a low-income you know, households, you might be the first person who went to college, you might be the first entrepreneur in your family, whatever that is, right? And the expectations around that can influence how much we then fall into a trap of A, seeing our value only in the extent to which we achieve our potential in this highly recognized skill or talent that we have, and B, um, how hard we push at it to really make it become the savior or the best in class example or the thing that everyone in your family can be proud of of you that can validate the role you play. Because all of us also do play roles in society. Sometimes we're the smart friend. <laughs> 
or we're the hardworking daughter or we're the one who takes care of everyone. And then we start living for the role that we play and the expectation other people have of us and not so much for what matters to us personally. And I 100% fell into that trap until I did a lot of work on myself to come back into my story and say, well, what do I care about? What gives me worth outside of everyone else? And let me live for that. Right. Because I, I think, you know, our past accomplishment can be blessings and, and burdens. My dad's an entrepreneur. I come from a middle, upper class, if you want. So I had that comfort all my life. Primary school, I was really successful, one could say, class president, chess champion, doing well in sports and all of that. My parents, they never really pushed me in a direction which could be good or bad, and we could analyze that further. But in high school, I kind of fell from my pedestal, you know, that was like swimming in a bigger pond. And I think that had huge chip on my shoulder later on in my life. So I'm kind of picking back my primary um, slash elementary school uh, younger self as of now it is one of my theory. Um, but I don't have the, I don't feel the pressure of expectations because I, I feel I'm progressing like 1% daily, but I do know and have interviewed various CEOs that do have this pressure on themselves, you know, that had parents that really put them in sports and, you know, always had expectation and my son, he's going to be the best at hockey. I'm going to put him in the best team. And then I've seen both sides, you know, I've seen people uh, end up being successful or I mean, quote unquote successful. I have some friends that, you know, schedule very, very much everything in their calendar. Everything's about accomplishment. I don't see them happy. I've seen the other end of the spectrum of folks that just fell into total despair from all these expectations, you know, that were crushed by the expectations. And now they're quote unquote, not successful, aka losers. Um, it's, it's just weird and, um, interesting to observe psychology at play, but let me ask you that when you coach CEOs nowadays, what problems do you see in them? Is it the past that is bringing them down? You know, do you dive deep into their psychology or do you just go with the, the present problems and try to fix them one by one? What's your coaching style? Yeah. I, I find that the past informs the present and our relationship with the past. So I have the greatest impact with clients when I help them to build self-awareness around why are they who they are that is showing up in this way in the topic they're coming to work on with me, right? So I had a client, for example, who felt like she wasn't influencing people well. And she felt like maybe I'm not saying the right words. I, I'm too extra, I'm too introverted. I haven't got experience in this, etc. Um, and then we start unpacking things a bit and she starts discovering, okay, well, actually she feels safest when she's in the delivery <laughs> and she's kind of hiding. And it's because she is afraid of the visibility of what it would mean if she wasn't in the delivery. And then we unpack that a bit and we understand, oh no, it's because she's always been the savior in her family, who's like taking care of everyone who, who sweeps in to save. And that's where she's A, gotten validation. B, that's what her family said, you're good at this. This is what we need from you. This makes you a worthy daughter and wife, et cetera. And now she's like a business development director 
who's also playing a very operational role and keeps falling into who needs sa- who needs saving in the situation and focusing on saving people in the situation and stopping her from stepping forward to lead and actually bringing a, a, a team in place that is competent enough to not need saving so that she can step out and go and win business, right? Go, go de-bottleneck project that they're working on with clients. And so actually the, the key for her lay in the past to understand why I'm doing this. Otherwise she came to me feeling like, sh- is it okay if I swear? <laughs> you can, yeah. Okay, it's feeling, a swear free feeling like right? shit. Oh yeah, okay, good. So she came to me feeling like shit because she's like, well, why aren't I doing this? I'm a terrible leader. No, you aren't. You're a human being who has experienced life that has taught you a way of being. Let us unteach, help you unlearn that way of being, teach you a new way of being based on new principles of value and validation and um, what makes you valuable in a situation. You're not valuable because you're saving. You're valuable because you're shaping the direction. And let's teach you to value that yourself what it looks like, what great looks like when you are shaping the direction and give you practical tools to be able to start showing up in a more directing capacity and less in a saving capacity. And so as I coach my clients, I do all the things I've mentioned there. And that is what really drives impact. You can't just look at the past. You also have to say, well, what would the future look like? And then help a client bridge the gap. It's just fascinating to analyze the human brain and the psychology. And it's also fascinating to see how much we're missing out, right? Like if I go to the gym and I sprain a muscle, it's instant, you know, it's like, oh shit, I need to stop working that muscle. It hurts. I'm injuring myself. But the non-obvious thing is that we're full of these mental injuries. We take the wrong paths a lot of time. Mentally speaking, we torture ourselves for useless reasons uh basically and and what makes me realize that in my case for example i did an ultra swim last uh sunday 10 kilometer swim which is quite kind of extreme took five hours 20 and i get to realize all these demons that are surfacing left and right you know and most of the the time like you said it's the child it's the children he's complaining Mm -hmm. you know are we there yet did we arrive yet mommy and daddy are we there yet and that's what we need to work on. Uh, so thanks for the, the work that you're doing. It's uh, it's quite amazing. And you're quite an exceptional individual as well. I was the first spot, but it's, uh, it's certainly not the last. So where can people find out more about you, Tenji? Yeah, um, thanks for having me here, Charles. Anyone listening can follow me on Instagram at Tenji Moyana, T-E-N-J-I, Moyana, M-O-Y-A-N-A. Same handle on inst on linkedin same for my website www.tenjimoyana.com thank you for listening to this week's episode i hope it's inspired you to take action that brings you closer to leading as the truest version of your abundant self if you enjoyed this episode please would you consider leaving a five-star rating and following the podcast it really helps other people like you to find me and benefit from this free leadership resource yours in abundance. Until next time.